25. Price of boy suits and rocking horses. In the state of paternal felicity we must leave him till our next. To capitalists. It is rumored that McCready is desirous of disposing of his manners previous to becoming manager, when he will have no further occasion for them. They are in excellent condition, having been very little used, and would be a desirable purchase for anyone expecting to move within the sphere of his management. Reasons Northeast plus Ultra, a point impossible for mine to reach to find the meaning of a royal speech. An appropriate name, the late queen of the Sandwich Islands, and the first convert to Christianity in that country, was called Kepilani, which means, the dropping of the clouds from heaven. Epigram on the above, this name's the best that could be given, as will by proof be quickly seen, for, dropping from the clouds of heaven, she was, of course, the reigning queen. Caution to sportsmen. Our gallant friend Sithorpe backed himself on the 1st of September to bag a hundred leverets in the course of the day. He lost, of course, and upon being questioned as to his reason for making so preposterous a bet, he confessed that he had been induced to do so by the specious promise of an advertisement, in which somebody professed to have discovered a powder for the removal of superfluous hairs, out of season, a lyric, by the last man in town, chaos returns, no souls in town and darkness reigns where lamps once brightened, shutters are closed, and blinds drawn down and trodden doorsteps go unlightened. The echoes of some straggler's boots alone are on the pavement ringing while prentice boys, who smoke cheroots, stand critics to some broom girl singing. I went to call on Madame Sims, in a dark street, not far from Drury, an Irish crone half off the door, whose head might represent a fury. At home, sir, no. Whisper but I'll presume to tell the truth, or know the raison. She dines days lives in the back room, because tea's not the London size on. From thence I went to a lady blooms, where, after sundry rings and knocking, a yawning, liveried lad appeared, his squalid face his gay clothes mocking I asked him, in a faltering tone the house was closed I guess the reason, is lady B. single quote as grand and, then, gone, to a ramsgate, sir, until next season. I sauntered on to Harry Gray's, the ennui of my heart to alighten, his landlady, with, smirk and smile, said, he had just run down to Brighton, when home I turned my steps, at last, a tailor whom to kick were trees and pressed for his bill, I hurried past, politely saying call next season, the gentleman's own book, we concluded our last article with a brief dissertation on the cut of the trousers, we will now proceed to the consideration of coats. The hour must come when such things must be made. For this quotation we are indebted to there are three kinds of coats the body, the surtout, and the great. The body coat is again divided into classes, according to their application, viz. the drawing room, the ride, and the field. The cut of the dress coat is of paramount importance, that being the garment which decorates the gentleman at a time when he is naturally ambitious of going the entire dorsey. There is great nicety required in cutting this article of dress so that it may at one and the same moment display the figure and waistcoat of the wearer to the utmost advantage. None but a John O. single quote quote single quote Ascoff would allow it to be imagined that the buttons and buttonholes of this robe were ever intended to be anything but opposite neighbors, for a contrary conviction would imply the absence of a cloak in the hall or a cab at the door. We do not intend to give a Schneiderian dissertation upon garments, we merely wish to trace outlines but to those who are anxious for a more intimate acquaintance with the intricacies and mysteries of the delightful and civilizing art of cutting, we can only say, Vidi Stultz, 
Should any gentleman avail himself of this hint, we should feel obliged if he would mention the source from whence it was derived, having a small account standing in that quarter, for tailors have gratitude. The riding coat is the connecting link between the dress and the rest of the great family of coats, as one button, and one only of this garment, may be allowed to be applied to his apparent use. It is so cut, that the waistcoat pockets may be easy of access. Any gentleman who has attended races or other sporting meetings must have found the convenience of this arrangement, for where the course is well managed, as at Epsom, Ascot, Hampton, and C. By the judicious regulations of the stewards, the fingers are generally employed in the distribution of those miniature Argentine medallions of Her Majesty so particularly admired by ostlers, correct card vendors, the old table keepers, Mr. Jerry, and the toll takers on the road and the course. The original idea of these coats was accidentally given by John Day, who was describing, on Nugie's cutting board, the exact curvature of Tattenham Corner. The shooting jacket should be designed after a dovecot or a chest of drawers, and the great art in rendering this garment perfect, is to make the coat entirely of pockets, that part which covers the shoulders being only accepted, from the difficulty of carrying even a cigar case in that peculiar situation, the surtout knot regulation admits of very little design, it can only be varied by the length of the skirts, which may be either as long as a fireman's, or as short as Duvernay's petticoats, this coat island in fact a cross between the dress and the driving, and may, perhaps, be described as a Benjamin Jr., of the Benjamin Sr., there are several kinds the Taglioni, the P, the Monkey, the Box, et sui generis, the three first are all of the Colsacian cut, being, in fact, elegant elongated pillowcases, with two diminutive bolsters, which are to be filled with arms instead of feathers, they are singularly adapted for concealing the fall in the back and displaying to the greatest advantage those unassuming casters designated jerrys, which have so successfully rivaled those silky impostors known to the world as the box coat has, of late years, been denuded of its layers of capes, and is now cut for the sole purpose, apparently, of supporting perpendicular rows of wooden platters or mother-of-pearl counters, each of which would be nearly large enough for the top of a lady's work table. Macintosh coats have, in some measure, superseded the box coat, like Carter's smock frocks, they are all the creations of speculative minds, having the great advantage of keeping out the water, whilst they assist you in becoming saturated with perspiration, we strongly suspect their acquaintance with India rubber, they seem to us to be a preparation of English rheumatism, having rather more of the Qatar than couchwick in their composition, everybody knows the affinity of India rubber to black lead, but when made into a Macintosh, you may substitute the lump for the plumbago, we never see a fellow in a sealskin cap, and one of these waterproof pudding bags, but we fancy he would make an excellent model for the ornaments and pathology will next command our attention. A friend insulted us the other day with the following, Billy Black supposes Sam Rogers wears a tightly laced bodice, why is it like one of Milton's heroes, seeing we gave it up? He replied, because Sam's on agony stays, Samson agonists, the golden square revolution, my express, this morning. At an early hour, we were thrown into the greatest consternation by a column of boys, who poured in upon us from the northern entrance, and, taking up their station near the pump, we expected the worst. Eight o'clock. The worst has not yet happened. An inhabitant has entered the square garden, and planted himself at the back of the statue, but everything is in statu quo. Five minutes past eight. The boys are still there. The square keeper is nowhere to be found. 
Ten minutes past eight, the insurgents have, some of them, mounted on the fire escape. The square keeper has been seen. He is sneaking round the corner, and resolutely refuses to come nearer. One four past eight, a deputation has waited on the square keeper. It is expected that he will resign. Twenty minutes past eight, the square keeper refuses to resign. Twenty-two minutes past eight, the square keeper has resigned. Twenty-five minutes past eight, the boys have gone home. One two past eight, the square keeper has been restored, and is showing great courage and activity. It is not thought necessary to place him under arms, but he is under the engine, which can be brought into play at a moment's notice. His activity is surprising, and his resolution quite undaunted. Nine o'clock. All is perfectly quiet, and the letters are being delivered by the general postman as usual. The inhabitants appear to be going to their business, as if nothing had happened. The square keeper, with the whole of his staff a constable's staff, may be seen walking quietly up and down. The revolution is at an end, and, thanks to the fire engine, our old constitution is still preserved to us. Recollections of a trip in Mr. Hampton's balloon, in a letter from a would-be passenger. My dear friend, you are aware how long I have been longing to go up in a balloon, and that I should certainly have some time ago ascended with Mr. Green, had not his terms been not simply a cut above me, but several dashes beyond my power to comply with them. In a word, I did not go up with the NASA because I could not come down with the dust, and though I always had green in my eye, I was not quite so soft as to pay twenty pounds in hard cash for the fun of going, on nobody knows where, and coming down heaven knows how, in a field belonging to the Lord knows who, and being detained for goodness knows what, for damage, not being inclined, therefore, for a nice and expensive voyage with Mr. Green, I made a cheap and nasty arrangement with Mr. Hampton, the gentleman who courageously offers to descend in a parachute a thing very like a parasol and who, as he never mounts much above the height of ordinary palings, might keep his word without the smallest risk of any personal inconvenience. It was arranged and publicly announced that the balloon, carrying its owner and myself, should start from the tea gardens of the mitre and mustard pot, at six o'clock in the evening, and the public were to be admitted at one, to see the process of inflation it being shrewdly calculated by the proprietor, that, as the balloon got full, the stomachs of the lookers-on would be getting empty, and that the refreshments would go off while the tedious work of filling a silken bag with gas was going on, so that the appetites and the curiosity of the public would be at the same time satisfied. The process of inflation seemed to have but little effect on the balloon, and it was not until about five o'clock that the important discovery was made that the gas introduced at the bottom had been escaping through a hole in the top, and that the equitable company was laying it on excessively thick through the windpipes of the assembled company. Six o'clock arrived, and, according to contract, the supply of gas was cut off, when the balloon, that had hitherto worn such an appearance as just to give a hope that it might in time be full, began to present an aspect which induced a general fear that it must very shortly be empty. The audience began to be impatient for the promised ascent and while the aeronaut was running about in all directions looking for the hole, and wondering how he should stop it up, I was requested by the proprietor of the gardens to step into the car, just to check the growing impatience of the audience. I was received with that unanimous shout of cheering and laughter with which a British audience always welcomes anyone who appears to have got into an awkward predicament, and I sat for a few minutes, quietly expecting to be buried in the silk of the balloon which was beginning to collapse with the greatest rapidity. 
the spectators becoming impatient for the promised ascent, and seeing that it could not be achieved, determined, as enlightened British audiences invariably do, that if it was not to be done, it should at all events be attempted. In vain did Mr. Hampton come forward to apologize for the trifling accident, he was met by yells, hoots, hisses, and orange peel, and the benches were just about to be torn up, when he declared, that under any circumstances, he was determined to go up an arrangement in which I was refusing to coincide when, just as he had got into the car, all means of getting out were withdrawn from under us the ropes were cut, and the ascent commenced in earnest. The majestic machine rose slowly to the height of about eight feet, amid the most enthusiastic cheers, when it rolled over among some trees, amid the most frantic laughter, Mr. Hampton, with singular presence of mind, threw out every ounce of ballast, which caused the balloon to ascend a few feet higher, when a tremendous gust of easterly wind took us triumphantly out of the gardens, the palings of which we cleared with considerable nicety. The scene at this moment was magnificent, the silken monster, in a state of flabbiness, rolling and fluttering above, while below us were thousands of spectators, absolutely shrieking with merriment, another gust of wind carried us rapidly forward, and, bringing us exactly in a level with a coach stand, we literally swept, with the bottom of our car, every driver from off his box, and, of course, the enthusiasm of a British audience almost reached its climax, we now encountered the gable end of a station house, and the balloon being by this time thoroughly collapsed, our aerial trip was brought to an abrupt conclusion, I know nothing more of what occurred, having been carried on a shutter, in a state of to my own lodging, while my companion was left to fight it out with the mob, who were so anxious to possess themselves of some memento of the occasion, that the balloon was torn to ribbons, and a fragment of it carried away by almost every one of the vast multitude which had assembled to honor him with their patronage, I had the honor to be, Yours, and see, ASPOLE, fearful state of London, a country gentleman informs us that he was horror-stricken at the sight of an apparently organized band, wearing festion coats, decorated with curious brass badges, bearing exceedingly high numbers, who perched themselves behind the padding omnibuses, and, in the most barefaced and treasonable manner, urged the surrounding populace to open acts of daring violence, and wholesale arson, by shouting out, at the top of their voices, O'Byrne, the city, and the bank, who are to be the lords in waiting, we have lordlings in dozens, the Tories exclaim, to fill every place from the throng, although the cursed wigs, be it told to our shame, kept us poor lords in waiting too long, looking on the black side of things, the Honorable Sambo Sutton begs us to state, that he is not the Honorable Sutton who was announced as the secretary for the Home Department he might have been induced to have stepped into a Lord Cobham's shoes, on his awful case of smashing, frightful negligence of the police Fiergus O'Connor passed his word last week at the London Tavern, new swimming apparatus, that the late collision between the Beacon Brig and the Topaz steamer, one of the passengers, anticipating the sinking of both vessels, and being strongly imbued with the great principle of self-preservation, immediately secured himself the assistance of the anchor, did he conceive, hope, to have been insexed, or that that attribute originally existed as a, floating boy, S.Y.N.C.R.E.I.C. literature, the loves of Giles Scroggins and Molly Brown, an epic poem, London, C.A.D.N.A.C.H., the great essentials necessary for the true confirmation of the sublimest effort of poetic genius, the construction of an, epic poem, are numerically three, viz., a beginning, a middle, and an end, 
the incipient characters necessary to the beginning, ripening in the middle, and, like the drinkers of small beer and October leaves, falling in the end, the poem being thus divided into its several stages, the judgment of the writer should emulate that of the experienced Jehu, who so proportions his work, that all and several of his required teams do their own share and no more fifteen miles or lengths to a first canto, and five to a second, is as far from right as such a distribution of milestones would be to the overworked prads. The great fault of modern poetasters arises from their extreme love of spinning out an infinite deal of nothing. Now, as brevity is the soul of wit, their productions can be looked upon as little else than phantasmagorial skeletons, ridiculous from their extreme extenuation, and in appearance more peculiarly empty, from the circumstance of their owing their existence to false lights. This fault does not exist with all the master spirits, and, though many a flower is born to blush and seem, we now proceed to a rescue from obscurity the brightest gem of infant literature. Wisdom is said to be found in the mouths of babes and sucklings. So is the epic poem of Giles Scroggins. Is wisdom Scroggins, or is Scroggins wisdom? We can prove either position, but we are cramped for space, and therefore leave the question open. Now for our author and his first line, Giles Scroggins courted Molly Brown. Beautiful condensation. Is or is not this rushing at once in media's rays? It is, there's no paltry subterfuge about it no unnecessary wearing out of the waning moon they met by, the stars that gazed upon their joy, the whispering nails that breathed in Zephyr's softest sighs, their lovers' perjuries to the distracted trees they wouldn't allow to go to sleep. In short, there's no nonsense, there's a broad assertion of a thrilling fact, Giles Scroggins courted Molly Brown. So might a thousand folks, therefore the reader may say how does this establish the individuality of Giles Scroggins? or give an insight to the character of the chosen hero of the poem, mark the next line, and your doubts must vanish. He courted her, but why? 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 For the best of all possible reasons condensed in the smallest of all possible space, and yet establishing his perfect taste, an equal judgment, and peculiarly heroic self-esteem he courted her because she was the fairest maid in all the town. Magnificent climax. Overwhelming reason. Could volumes written, printed, or stereotyped, say more, certainly not, the condensation of Aurora's blushes, the graces attributes, Venus's perfections, and, love's sweet votaries, all, all is more than spoken in the emphatic words, the fairest maid in all the town, nothing can go beyond this, it proves her beauty and her disinterestedness, the fairest maid might have chosen, nay, commanded, even a city dignitary, does the so, no, Giles Scroggins, famous only in name, loves her, and beautiful poetic contrivance, we are left to imagine he does, not love and loved, why should she reciprocate, inquires the reader, are not truth and generosity the princely paragons of manly virtue, greater, because unostentatious, and these perfect attributes are part and parcel of great Giles, he makes no speeches soils no sad paper vows no vows number he is above such humbug, his motto is evidently deeds, not words, and what does he do? Send a flimsy epistle, which his fair reader pays the vile postage for. Not he, he, gave a ring with posy true. Think of this. Not only does he, give a ring, but he annihilates the suppository on our fiction in which poets are supposed to revel, and the ring's accompaniment. Though the child of a creative brain the burning emanation from some Apollo-stricken votary of, the lying nine, imbued with all his stern morality, is strictly, true. The startling fact is not left wrapped in mystery. The veriest skeptic cannot, in imagination, 
grave a fancied double meaning on that richest gift. No the motto follows, and seems to say now, as the champion of Giles Scroggins, hurl I this gauntlet down, let him that dare, uplift it, here I am, if you loves I as I loves you, pray mark the syncretic force of the above line, Giles, in expressing his affection, felt the singular too small, and the vast plural quick supplied the void loves must be more than love, if you loves I as I loves you, no knife shall cut our loves in two, this is really sublime, no knife, can anything exceed the assertion, nothing but the rejoinder a rejoinder in which the talent doffer not only stands proudly forward as a poet, but patriotically proves the amor propri, which has induced him to study the staple manufactures of his beloved country, what but a diligent investigation of the cutlerian process could have prompted the illustration of practical knowledge of the Birmingham and Sheffield artificers contained in the following exquisitely explanatory line, but pray mark the but, but scissors cut as well as knives, sublime announcement, startling information, leading us, by degrees, to the highest of all earthly contemplations, exalting us to fate and her peculiar shears, and preparing us for the exquisitely poetical sequel contained in the following line, and so you and sardines all our lives, can anything exceed this, the uncertainty of life evidently superinduct the conviction of all other uncertainties, and the sublime poet bears out the intenseness of his impressions by the uncertainty of his spelling, now, reader, mark the next line, and its context, the very night they were to wed, fancy this, the full blossoming of all their budding joys, anticipations, death, and hope's accomplishment, the crowning hour of their youth's great bliss, the very night they were to a Wednesday, island with extra syncretic skill, chosen as the awful one in which, fate scissors cut Giles Scroggins thread, now, reader, do you see the subtle use of practical knowledge, are you convinced of the impotent prescription from knives only, can you not perceive in, fate scissors, a parallel for the undaught of host, that bore the mighty would have been seen in against the bloodstained murderer of the pious Duncan? Does not the fatal truth rush, like an unseen draught into a rheumatic crannies, slick through your soul's perception? Are you not prepared for this to be resumed in our next, the new administration, from our own court circular? Lord Lyndhurst is to have the seals, but it is not yet decided who is to be entrusted with the wafer stamps. Goldstick has not been appointed, and there are so many of the conservatives whose qualities peculiarly fit them for the office of stick, that the choice will be exceedingly embarrassing. Though the Duke of Wellington does not take office, an extra chair has been ordered, to allow of his having a seat in the cabinet, and though Lord Melbourne is no longer minister, he is still to be indulged with a lounge on the sofa, if the Duke of Beaufort is to be master of the horse, it is probable that a new office will be made, to allow Colonel Sithorpe to take office as comptroller of the donkeys, and it is said that Horace Twiss is to join the administration as clerk of the kitchen, it was remarked that after Sir Robert Peel had kissed hands, the Queen called for soap and water, for the purpose of washing them, the Duchess of Buckleu having refused the office of Mistress of the Robes, it will not be necessary to make the contemplated new appointment of Keeper of the Flannel Petticoats, the grooms of the bedchamber are, for the future, to be styled postillions of the dressing room, because, as the Sovereign is a lady, instead of a gentleman, it is thought that the latter title, for the officers alluded to, will be more in accordance with propriety, for the same excellent reason, it is expected that the knights of the bath will henceforth be designated the chevaliers of the foot then, Prince Albert's household is to be entirely remodeled, and one or two new offices are to be added, 
the want of which has hitherto occasioned His Royal Highness much inconvenience. Of these, we are only authorized in alluding, at present, to toothbrush in ordinary, and shaving pot in waiting. There is no foundation for the report that there is to be a Lord High Clothes Brush, or Privy Boot Jack. A voice from the area, the following letter has been addressed to us by a certain party, who, as our readers will perceive, has been one of the sufferers by the late clearance made in a fashionable establishment at the West End, dear Punch, as you may not be aware of the melancholy change which has occurred to the poor servants here, I hasten to let you know that every soul on us has lost our places, and are turned out which is a dreadful calamity, seeing as we was all very comfortable and happy as we was, I must say, in gusties to our missus, that she was very fond of us, and wouldn't have parted with one of us if she had her will, but she's only a in her own house, and is never allowed to do as she likes. We got warning regular enough, but we still thought that something might turn up in our fever. However, when the day came that we was to go, it fell upon us like a thunderbolt. You can't imagine the confusion we was all through into everybody packing up their little affairs, and rummaging about for any trifle that wasn't worth leaving behind. The servants as is coming upon us is a nice set, they have been a long while trying after our places, and at last they have succeeded in reminding us, but it's my opinion they'll never be able to get through the work of the house, all they cares for is the veils and perquisites. I forgot to mention that they hadn't the decency to wait till we was off the paramasses, which I believe is the etiquette in sick cases, but rushed in on last Friday, and took possession of all our places before we had left the concern. I leave you to judge by this what a hurry they was to get in there's one comfort, however, that is we've left things in sick a mess in the house, that I don't think they'll ever be able to set them to rights again, this is all at present from your afflicted friend, John the Footman, I declare I never knew a flatter companion than yourself, said Tom of Finsbury, the other evening, to the Lion of Lambeth, thank you, Tom, replied the latter, but all the world knows that you're a flatter are, Tom in nautical phrase, swore, if he ever came athwart his laws, that he would return the compliment with interest, my friend Tom, here, methinks, truth wants no ornament, Rogers, we have the happiness to know a gentleman of the name of Tom, who officiates in the capacity of ostler, we had enjoyed a long acquaintance with him we mean an acquaintance a long way off i.e. from the window of our dormitory, which overlooks at S.M.'s stables, we believe we are the first of our family, for some years, who has not kept a horse, and we derive a melancholy gratification in gazing for hours, from our lonely height, at the zoological possessions of more favored mortals, the horse is a noble animal, as a gentleman once wittily observed, when he found himself, for the first time in his life, in a position to make love, and we beg leave to repeat the remark, the horse is a noble animal, whether we consider him in his fullness or in his beauty, whether caparisoned in the chamfrain and demi peak of the chivalry of olden times, or scarcely fettered and surmounted by the snaffle and hog skin of the present, whether he excites our envy when bounding over the sandy deserts of Arabia, or awakens our sympathies when drawing sand from Hampstead and the parts adjacent, whether we see him as romance pictures him, foaming in the lists, or bearing, through flood and field, the brave, the beautiful, and the benighted, or, as we know him in reality, the companion of our pleasures, the slave of our necessities, the dislocator of our necks, or one of the performers at our funeral, whether but we are not drawing a bill in chancery, with such impressions in favor of the horse, 
we had ever felt a deep anxiety about those to whom his conduct and comfort are confided, the breeder we envy, the breaker we pity, the owner we esteem, the groom we respect, and the ostler we pay. Do not suppose that we wish to cast a slur upon the latter personage, but it is too much to require that he who keeps a caravansera should look upon every wayfarer as a brother. It is thus with the ostler, his feelings are never allowed to twine around one object, till he feels his heart of its sweet being form a deathless part. No to rub them down, give them a quarter and three penneth, and not too much water, or all that he has to connect him with the offspring of childers, eclipse, or potatoes, ergo. We pay him. My friend Tom is a fine specimen of the genus. He is about fifteen hands high, rising thirty, herring bowled, small head, large ears, closed mane, broad chest, and legs a low parentheses. His dress is a long brown holland jacket, covering the protuberance known in Bavaria by the name of Pugo, and in England by that of Bustle. His breeches are of cord about an inch in width, and of such capacious dimensions, that a truss of hay, or a quarter of oats might be stowed away in them with perfect convenience, not that we mean to insinuate they are ever thus employed, for when we have seen them, they have been in a collapsed state, hanging like the skin of an elephant in graceful festoons about the mid-person of the wearer. These necessaries are confined at the knee by a transverse row of pearl buttons crossing the genu patella. The pars pendula is about twelve inches wide, and supplies, during conversation or rumination, a resting place for the thumbs or little. 